Praise God. I thought the music ministry did a great job this morning. So. Good time to be excited. Hello up in the balconies. <laughs> Praise God. It's good to have the balcony open. Praise God. And we'd like to welcome right now those that are listening live by way of WSTL. We're glad that you're joining us this morning on Resurrection Sunday. And so let's pray. We're going to trust the Holy Spirit to do something in our lives today, to change us. We, whenever we come in contact with the Word of God, we should be changed. Because this is the living Word of God. This is God speaking. Every time you open your Bible, you're not just reading an historical book, but you're reading God speaking to you. And it will change your life, it will change your relationship with Him, it will change your relationship with this book. This is not an de- old dead book. This is the living Word of God that will change your life. And I am a testimony of that. And this room is filled with many people who are testimonies of that. So let's ask God to do that in our lives today. Father, as we come to you today on this day, we celebrate and remember the greatest miracle you ever performed when you raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And we're going to look today, Father, at what that means for us, what that meant, and what that means for us today. To do that, we're asking you to help us. Open the eyes of our understanding today that we would see the hope, the hope of your calling for our life that is in Christ Jesus. Open the eyes of our understanding that we might see more fully and more personally what he has done for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Father, change us today by the power of your word. And for that, we trust in the precious Holy Spirit who's been given to us to open our eyes to see. And we rest and trust in him. I surrender to him my heart, my mind, my thoughts today, that he would speak through my lips today only what you want to say and through my heart only what you want to communicate. And we thank you and trust you for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Praise the Lord. Well, this is a day when we celebrate, celebration of all kinds of things. It's the days when family are going to gather together. In fact, after church, our family that lives around here is going to come over to our house, and we're going to have some good food and some good time together, and it's wonderfully wonderful when our children get together and share stories of their childhood, and I discover things that happened I didn't know had happened. (laughs) It's also an educational time for us sometimes, but praise God, we all survived it, and God is good and gracious. It's a time of family getting together sometimes, and I don't know what, you're, what, what it means to you. Some, for some, it's you know, Easter egg hunts, and it's candy. I know with kids, it's often candy, you know, and maybe for some of the adults, um, the, what candy we're going to get. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great time. But what is it we're really celebrating today? What does this mean? It, is it just this an historical event that happened about 2,000 years ago? I mean, I love it because on television now they begin to show today religious movies, what they consider religious movies, uh, which is interesting what some of those executives think are religious movies. Um, what is this all about today? Is it just a day for a family or gathering or candy? Is it an historical, historical event? What does it mean to us? Well, there are many ways you can talk about this in church because the Bible talks about many aspects of it. But there's something that I really felt happened in me or I saw in prayer about a month ago. And the moment I saw it, I knew that it was something that needed to be shared today because I saw something at a deeper level than I'd ever seen in my 30-some years of walking with the Lord. Uh, And the key to it is in, we're going to look at some other scriptures, but the key in John chapter 19, you don't need to turn there. Uh, Jesus, of course, has been beaten, he's been, he's crucified, he's hanging on a cross, and there, if you go through the different gospels, there are about seven specific words that he says, but the last ones he says in John chapter 19, uh, in verse 30, these simple words, two words, it is finished, 
It is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai, which is an announcement of victory. Uh, often a general at a point in battle when, he was, when the victory was turned and although there was still some mopping up exercise to go through to, so that his soldiers would know that from the general's perspective the battle had been won would shout to Telestai. Those of you who are basketball fans and can remember back to the days of Red Arback and the Celtics, he had a habit that when he knew that the game was won, he would take out his cigar and light it. He'd light his victory cigar out, and there may be three minutes to go in the game, but he knew the tide had turned and it was not going to come back again. And Jesus' last words from the cross before he released his spirit is, it is finished. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, obviously his life on earth, his earthly ministry was finished, but I believe it has to be much more than that. And we're going to take a look at that today. So to do that, let's go to Acts chapter 2. And what we're looking at here is nothing more than the Apostle Peter's explanation of the death, burial, and resurrection. Because what's happened in the meantime is 40 days have come to gone, and we're on what's called the day of Pentecost. And on that day, something that Jesus foretold would happen, happened, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. They were gathered together, about 120 of them in a little room, and the Spirit of God was poured out on them, and they began, they had, was, there was a sound of a muddy rushing wind blew through the place, uh, there was fire broke out on their head, not literal fire because they would have burned up, but the Bible says it was, clove, it, was, it was fire radiating out of their head, it was the glory of God. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak with tongues nobody else could understand. And they spilled out into the street. They didn't just stay in church. They spilled out into the street in this joy, this peace, this overwhelming sense of the reality of God on the inside of them. They couldn't contain it. It flowed out of them. And as it flowed out of them, people began to gather around them and to try to, to, to what was going on. It created a commotion. And especially they were speaking in these languages they didn't understand. They didn't understand. But some of the foreigners began to write, you know, how did they find out what my language is? Because they're praising God in my language. So this miraculous thing was happening. In the middle of all this confusion, the apostle Peter, who only a little over a month earlier had denied to a little, a little laundry girl that he didn't even know who Christ was and actually cursed him. Now he's boldly proclaiming what's happened. And so I think this is very insightful to what we're going to look at today. So we're going to pick up here in, second, in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. So Peter, this is the end of part of Peter's address. Men of Israel, hear these words, that Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs. So God has proven to you that he's his son by the miracles, wonders, and signs which he did, which God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. Verse 23, him being delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God. I used to sit in church on Good Friday and think, oh my goodness, God somehow lost it because the Romans and the Jews got a hold of his son and crucified him. I wish, I wish he'd come down off that cross. Well, I didn't understand that if he'd come down off that cross, then you and I'd be eternally lost. He needed to do that because this was the plan of God to redeem mankind, which is what we're going to look at this morning. So it says, by God's predetermined purpose and knowledge, he says, and you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified him and put him to death. So he's talking to the very people that crucified him. Verse 24, this is what we're talking about today. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Literally, the word loose means destroyed 
the pains or the sorrows of death because it was not possible that he should be held by them, that he should be held by death. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. This is King David prophesying back uh, in Psalm 8:16. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He's at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will resist, will also rest in hope. Verse 27 is what I want you to see. For you will not allow my soul in Hades, that's hell, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will not leave my soul in hell. You will not allow the whole, your Holy One to see corruption, His flesh be corrupted. For you have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make, full of my, make, make me full of joy in your presence. Verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. In other words, he wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about someone else. Therefore, verse 30, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, someone that would ultimately descend from him according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. That's what we're here to celebrate today. That his soul was not to be left in Hades or hell, nor his flesh to see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has poured out that which you now see and hear. A little bit of background here. To do this, we're going to go all the way back to the book of beginnings. And I'm just going to summarize some things for you. When God created the heavens and the earth, and then created man, He created them perfectly. There was no sin, there was no sickness, there was no anger, there was no fear, there was no strife. In fact, the world that God created was intended to be fruitful and bountiful. And then God created man. He didn't create him like any other creation. Everything else God just spoke into being. He created the animals. He created the plant life. He created the the environment all by saying, let there be. But when it came to man, he created him differently. It says he formed him out of his body, out of the dust of the earth, out of the material substance of this earth. And then he took his own breath and he breathed his own breath into him and he became a living being. And man, it says, was made in his image. The only thing God created that was made in his image. And God made him in his image. Say, why would he do that? Because God, his essence is love. And love is never satisfied unless it has someone on whom to bestow that love and the blessings of that love. And so if you read through Genesis 1 and 2, what you see is God created this man and he created him so that he could have a living relationship with him. And the implication is he would come down in the cool of the evening and walk with this man and talk with him face to face. God and this man face to face. And then God brings out of him the woman and it's with them together because God talks about them in the plural. And that's Genesis 1 and 2. But in Genesis 3, the whole story turns around. Up until then, there's no sickness in the world. There's no fear in the world. There's no shame. In fact, the last verse of chapter 2 really kind of hits it. It says, this man and woman were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, just the thought of suddenly sitting in church with your clothes off, immediately we go, 
It's one of those dreams sometimes people have of, you know, suddenly I'm in front of a class having to speak and there's nothing there. And what that reveals is the shame we have. But they had no consciousness of themselves. They were so conscious of God that they weren't even aware that they had no clothes on. You've got to be pretty focused to not be aware you have any clothes on. In chapter 3, Satan enters, and his whole purpose is to turn this upside down, to do on the earth what he tried to do in heaven. And the way he does it is to tempt them, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because we've studied this before, to tempt this man and woman to take their life into their own hands by saying you can't trust what God said. They began by getting them to question it, and then he directly challenged it. Has God said, because what God said, if you eat of the tree, you can enjoy everything else. Everything else I've given to you here is to enjoy. In fact, I made this garden called Eden, which means a place of delight, so you could enjoy it. God's not a stick in the mud. God's not against us enjoying life, but the only way to truly enjoy it is His way, because everything else has a price tag attached to it. And if you ever consume too much alcohol on a Saturday night you know on Sunday morning there was a price tag attached to it. There's a price tag attached to everything that does not come from God. But God wants you to enjoy life. He also gave them a responsibility, a job. Look at your neighbor and say, God gave him a job. (laughs) All right, job's good. God gives a job. But when God gave it to him, all of the earth was designed and empowered to help him carry it out. So part of his responsibility was to tend the garden and water the garden, but there was a mist that rose up every morning and settled as a dew, so all he had to do was oversee it. He didn't have to work hard at it, because it didn't fight him. And Satan comes and gets them to disobey God by saying, you can't trust God. You've got to take everything into your hands, and you've got to be the final judge of what's right and wrong. And the moment they did that, there was a fall. It's called the fall. There was a fall that took place that we will never fully understand the enormity of it until we get to heaven. Because we live in that fallen world. But the moment they sinned, it opened a door to every evil thing that was in Satan's kingdom. Fear, shame. The very first things they did is they went and they hid because they were ashamed. They made clothing for themselves because they were now ashamed. And they became afraid. Fear, shame, guilt and all the depression, all the things that come out of that came in sickness and disease. Jesus gives us a little insight into this in John chapter 10. Because in John chapter 10 verse 10 says, the thief, which is Satan, comes only. The only reason, the only thing he has on his motive is to steal, kill, and destroy. I'll finish the rest of that verse later. So he comes into the garden to get them to open the door so he can bring in every evil work. We look at the world today and we see the result of that. I mean, it's gone crazy. Killing all over the place. Murder, lying. You get to the point where you don't know who you can trust. There are diseases that they're discovering almost every month that they don't have any antibiotic for or anything for. It's just rampant. What's this all coming from? And many people blame God. How could God let this happen? I've, I've talked to people that, you know, well, I, it's hard to believe in a God would allow this to happen. He didn't. You see, God gave Adam the authority on this earth. 
because when he gave him the responsibility to oversee it, he gave him the authority to carry out that responsibility. And in Genesis chapter 3, when they, bow, they basically bow their knee to Satan, they take the authority God gave them and they gave that to Satan. And the Bible talks in several places that Satan is the God of this earth. Now, you may be here this morning and say, well, I don't really believe in Satan. Well, Jesus did. It's all over the Bible. We don't run around afraid of him, but he's very real. And so are his demon forces. And so they, Adam took the authority that he'd been given over this earth and put it into Satan's hand, and Satan now became the God of this earth. So most of what you see, the destruction you see in the world today, is a result of his work in the world. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, once this mess has been created, God announces his plan of redemption, that he has a plan already in place to buy back what just happened. And all the rest of the Bible is the story of that redemption, is the story of that redemption. Man's disobedience of God surrendered to Satan this authority. And with this sin, Adam opened the door to Satan to bring in his authority and all the evil from his kingdom. Fear, guilt, shame, hate, selfishness, murder, and all the things that come out of that. You only have to go one chapter in the book of, in, in Genesis to see the result of it. Because the first son, Cain, becomes jealous of his younger brother, Abel, because Abel is, I don't want to get into why. And, and God warns him, he says, be careful, because sin is crouching at the door. We need to listen to that. Sin is crouching at the door to try to get into your life. It's now here. It wasn't here before your parents disobeyed me, but now it's here and it's trying to, it's knocking at the door, it's trying to find some crevice in your life to get in. And Cain did not heed God's instructions. And as a result, he let bitterness and anger and jealousy in his heart. And it says in verse 8, he stood up and he slew, he murdered his brother. He murdered his brother. So the fruit of the sin shows up right away. Not only that, God warned Adam. He says, if you disobey me, if you just read the English translation, it says, you will die. But literally in the regional language, the Hebrew, it says, in dying, you will die. The first death was an immediate separation from God. The second death was the fruit of that. That was his physical death. And it took him almost seven or eight hundred years to physically die. It doesn't take us seven or eight hundred years to physically die. Why? Because of the weight of sin that's now grown in the world in these thousands of years since this happened. So sin has now entered the world and all the fruit of that sin, that's very important for us to understand. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. I want to show you here this verse and a couple of other, and one other verse to show you why this is important and what came in through this sin. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul is recounting some of this in more spiritual terms. And he says in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, that was Adam, we just talked about him, and death through sin. So that sin, this is what I want you to see, this is the first most important thing to see. That sin opened a door 
for all of Satan's destruction, steal, kill, and destroy, to not only come into, into Adam's life, but let it loose in the world. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all of us have sinned. Let's go to James chapter 1. They'll put it up there for you. James chapter 1 verse 14. But each one when he's tempted is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then this is what I want you to see. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin when it's full grown brings forth death. So what I want, we want to need to see at this point is that Satan's avenue into the earth to mankind, Satan's avenue into your life and to my life comes through sin. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a sin you've committed. It's in the earth. Sickness and disease, cancer, all the plagues of mankind are in the earth now because the earth is under the dominion of the God of this earth, and these are his weapons to steal, kill, and destroy. There is physical destruction, there's emotional destruction, which in some ways is more devastating. Depression, discouragement, shame, all the things that eat away at the soul and rob us of enjoying the life that God intends for us and causes division and friction in families and breaks families up, destroys families, destroys the fabric of society and gives him a further foothold to destroy even more. And the more he can destroy, the more he breaks down this foundation and the fabric of our life so he can destroy even more and it becomes a, a, it becomes a, a, a mushrooming or, or a, a steamrolling effect. And that's very much where we are today. All you've got to do is pick up any newspaper or go online any morning and you see the fruit of it. This is not God's work. We're going to look at God's work this morning. This is the work of the evil one. I was interesting as I was going over this yesterday, it occurred to me, and, and I don't, I'm not preaching mythology, but, but society without God, without the Word of God, even has an awareness of something like this. The Greeks, in order to understand or come up with an explanation of why things happened, they developed their own philosophy called a mythology. And they formed their own gods and their own minds and their own teaching to explain certain things. And, and in this Greek mythology, the gods at one point, and I won't go into why, I didn't really study it out yesterday, but they, they decided to create a woman, a, a human woman, so that they could kind of play with her and see, affect her life. And her name was Pandora. And they gave to her a jar that contained all the evil that existed. And they entrusted that to her. And when they let her loose on the earth, she got curious and she opened the jar. There's a play written called Pandora's Box. Opened the jar and released all the evil. And I'm, I'm sharing that with you only from the, to let you know this. Even pagan society recognized that evil and destruction should not be natural. It had to come from somewhere. 
There has to be some explanation of it being released. And of course, without the understanding that we have from God's Word, they came up with their own theory, but they had a somehow inside an innate recognition that if this were created, it was not created from evil, but evil had to be introduced into it. It had to be introduced into it. In each of us, in each of our lives, Satan and his entire kingdom has dominion because of sin in our lives or sin in the world. And all of us, all of us have been in bondage to sin and its fruit. Bondage just means bound up, you can't get free. Bondage means you've tried over and over again to kick that habit. You've tried over and over again to do something right and you just can't seem to do it. You've tried over and over again to be free of something and you just can't seem to do it. And if that's not where you thought you were, we're all in bondage to sin itself, which is selfishness. Try hard to not be selfish. And the harder you try, the more selfish you become because you have to be focused on yourself to stop being selfish. And the more you focus on yourself, the more self-aware you are and the more selfish you are. So you can't get yourself free. When we were living in Oklahoma and our kids were smaller, someone gave us, or I don't remember how we got it, but we got a little, a little uh, hamster or gerbil. And we kept it in a cage, you know, a, a glass cage, and it had a wheel it could spin on you. But then I discovered in the pet shop this black plastic ball. And, and you had a little, you ever familiar with what I'm talking about? You could open up and drop the hamster in and, 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 and close it up. And you put him down on the carpet and he'd run all over the place. He'd go all over the house like this. He thought he was free. He thought he, he thought he understood what that horrible old 1980s shag orange carpet felt like. But he wasn't touching carpet at all. He was touching plastic. He was living in the illusion he was free. But we knew... He wasn't free. And that's what it's like to live life on this earth without Christ living in you. We live in the illusion that we're free. But at any time, the God of this world can just pick up that ball, open that, and drop you back in. But you know, we come to Christ and we think now we're free. And yet, most of us are still in some kind of bondage left over. At the men's meeting, I told this story, and those of you that were in school, been in school of ministry have heard this. We had a, a, a little poodle, miniature poodle named Mandy, a little cute black miniature poodle, just part of our family, went everywhere we went. And uh, we were, had her up on a beach in Maine at a family cottage. We were out on the, uh, on the beach, and when we would do that, because we couldn't let Mandy loose at that time, because we hadn't trained her yet, or I hadn't trained her yet. So we had to put her on a rope, on, the, on a, her leash, on a, her uh, collar, on a rope, and we had a long rope. It must have been 50 feet long or at least. So she can run back and forth on the beach. So we're down on the beach, and she's running back and forth, going up to the water, coming back. She thinks she's free. And a horse comes along, a rider and a horse comes along behind us, going down the beach behind us, and Mandy sees this horse and takes off after it. And about 48 feet, Mandy still thinks she's free. <laughs> at 49 feet, Mandy's going full tilt, at 50 feet, Manly was in for a shock. She had a reality check. She discovered she wasn't really free indeed. 
And many of us go through that. We read our Bible. We praise God. We pray. We do the things we're supposed to do. And we just get so, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve you. I'm going to be a witness for you. I'm gonna, and all of a sudden, something happens in your life. And it's like somebody pulls that chain back. And her feet went out from underneath her. And she hit the ground and went up. Well, what is going on? And it feels like that sometime. And then you realize, I'm still not free. I'm still not free. And then we're tempted to get discouraged and say, I guess I'll never be free. That's part of the chain that holds you in that. Remember, Jesus said it's finished. It's finished. It's finished. Well, the root, this is what we're going to get down to this morning. Understand this. The root of Satan's authority and the power over man is our sin. That's the hold he has, is sin. God's, righteous, God's righteousness, because of who God is, it demands a payment for sin in order to be satisfied. If you're caught speeding, the law prescribes a penalty for that. If you go rob the convenience store down the street here and you get caught, there's a penalty for that. You sin in the kingdom of God you sin in the world. There's a penalty for that. And the Bible tells us what that penalty is. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sins shall die. So the only way that God could deliver man from Satan's hold legally was to satisfy that demand. See, I think often we think that what God does is God does with us because He's love and He's gracious and He's forgiving, we think that what God does is when we've sinned, He just kind of looks the other way. What we as parents do. Now, Johnny, don't do that again, because if you do that again, you're going to get a spanking. And Johnny looks at you, and then you kind of want to look the other way, because you don't want to see Johnny do it again, because you know if Johnny does it again, you're going to have to give him a spanking, and Johnny does it again, and so we come back, we'll say, Johnny, I, I, if you do it again... I'm going to give you a little grace here. If you do it again, you're going to get a spanking. And what we think grace is, is we keep moving the standard and watering it down and watering it down. And, but if God did that, He'd no longer be God. If God's Word says that in the day you eat of it, you'll die, and they eat of it, and God says, well, I'll give you another chance, then God lied. And if God lied... He's no longer righteous himself. So God had no choice. It's not like he's mean. He's issued his commandment, his standard, and once his standard is issued, he can't change it no matter who it's for. But God had a way that the Bible says that even Satan couldn't imagine. It says if the rulers, if the rulers of this age had understood what God was up to, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Because God's plan to solve this problem was so far beyond what Satan or any other spirit could imagine because it required the ultimate act of love and Satan can't understand that. So he was trapped by his own greed. So God's plan announced from Genesis 3.15 on was to send his own son and have him live among us without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us he could have sinned, 
He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. You have to understand this difference. You were born with a tendency to sin in your flesh. If you don't believe that, just talk to a two-year-old. Mine, mine, mine. No, no, no. Because at that age, they've discovered self. Up until then, they think they're somehow an extension of you. But somewhere they get this revelation, oh, I'm my own person. So I'm going to establish my own kingdom at two years of age. Mine, mine, me, mine. No, I'll do it myself. Now we do the same thing, we're just more sophisticated. How did I get off on that? <laughs> so our flesh has that tendency. But Jesus was born as a combination. His, his, his body came through Mary. But His spirit being came directly from God. And His flesh had the capacity... Listen carefully... His flesh had the capacity to sin, but not the tendency. Kind of like this. You buy a new car. They've set the alignment of the wheels according to General Motors or Ford Manufacturing's specifications. Just the way they know their engineers have told them it should be set. So you drive it out of that showroom and go up on a highway, and you take your hands off of it, which you shouldn't do for very long. It will track straight because the wheels are in alignment. But you drive that around here in, in New England for very long in the wintertime and you bump into some curbs and things, that wheels get out of alignment. Now you go down that road and it will tend to go off into one ditch or another. That's where our flesh is. That's why when the Spirit of God comes in you, you get power steering. To overcome. Those of you who are old enough to remember what cars were like without power steering, try to park that dude. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He came, and although he had the capacity to sin, he didn't. He resisted it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 33 point some years, 33 and a half years. And Satan came at him to tempt him, but he didn't sin. So that when he goes to that cross, a sinless man is dying. A sinless man is dying. God's plan was to redeem mankind, was formed before the foundation of the world. Jesus came to defeat the power that man had given to Satan over man and to redeem mankind from the stranglehold in which man was held to fear, guilt, shame, sickness, and ultimately death and eternal separation from God. John 3.16, one of the most beloved scriptures says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. But I want to show you another verse that John wrote. This is in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He who sins is of the devil, the devil has sinned from the beginning. This is what I want you to see. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested, made known, came, that He might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. 
Now, I was taught growing up in church that Jesus came to pay for our sins, and he did. But the reason he wanted to pay for our sins is because that was the avenue that Satan had into our lives. That was the hold over him. But he came to destroy the works of Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're talking about Friday we celebrated his death. It says, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So on that cross, a sinless man took not just your sin and my sin, took sin upon himself. Took sin upon himself. 1 Peter 2.24 says, he, who, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to, he being dead to sin might live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. So he took our sin upon him on, on that cross. When he was beaten for us, and mocked and shamed for us. He took our beating. He took our mocking that we were entitled to. Our shame. He took all of that upon himself and he deserved none of it, but he took it upon himself. There's an amazing scene in the movie The Passion of the Christ. And and the specifics are not in here, but I believe the spirit of it are where Jesus is being flogged and they had him tied to that post and he was being flogged across the back and then whipped across the... And I don't want to go into the details of that. It's horrible. And then there's a look on his face as he looks up at the man doing it almost to say, you're not done yet. And so they roll him over on his back and begin to do it on his chest. That look was so powerful to me. Jesus wasn't trying to, wait, I can't get out of this. I can't wait till this is over. He knew he was paying a price. And what that scene is saying is, you haven't done enough to pay the price yet. Roll me over. And finish the job. And of course, he carried the upper part of the cross to the point he couldn't even carry it anymore and had to be relieved of that. And then they nail him to that cross. And on that cross, the Word of God says, God... Remember what God's got to do. The problem is sin is Satan's avenue in this world. Sin is Satan's avenue in your life. Sin is Satan's hold, not only just to kill you and destroy you, but to bring sickness into your life, to bring depression into your life. And every evil work, it's his hold. It's his door into your life. And you and I can't close it because we have legally committed that sin and we are legally liable for it. So God had to send someone that walked through this life and lived a righteous life according to God's standard, and then God put our sin on him for the judgment to be paid. This is what Satan could never imagine, because what he didn't realize, he was, being, he was falling into a trap. I don't have time to go back, but if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll see that his original ambition when he was Lucifer was to take Christ's place as the second person of the Godhead, and now he has him. Because when Christ died with sin on him, Satan had a legal hold to drag his soul into hell. That's why, that's why Peter quotes Joel, quotes David, Psalm 16, says, you will not allow my Holy One to undergo corruption. You will not allow him to stay in hell, Hades. So he had to go there in order to come out. Some people don't say he didn't go to hell. Well, the Bible says he did. In Ephesians chapter 4 saying, He who first ascended, descended. Well, He was already here. 
So he didn't descend here. He had to descend into the lower parts of the earth. Colossians 2. So Satan now has him legally in hell. Put it up there. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. I don't have time to explain that now. He made alive together with him, having forgiven your trespasses. So that, we, under, top there, so we know Jesus died to, for our forgiveness, right? But go to the next verse, verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us and was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. What that's saying is every legal claim against you for every sin you've ever committed, God put that on the cross and when the price was paid, it was the word in Greek actually means eradicated. Some of you that work in an office were old enough to remember when, when we, we, before they had electronic, you know, the uh, word processors, they would actually use a thing called a typewriter where you would push a key and the thing would go like that and, it, you know. But if you made a mistake, the, you'd have the secretary have to unwind it, go to the, get the whiteout. I have to go and white it out. But even that didn't do it. That just covered it over with white. This word means it eradicated it so that there was no longer any record of it. Eradicated the handwriting of claims that were against us, were contrary to us, and he's taken them out of the way, having nailed them to the cross. You can take that down now. We're going to come back in a moment. So, when the, so what happens is on the cross, your sins and mine were put on him. Satan now is a legal right. By the way, Jesus, they didn't take his life from him. It says he gave it up. He was in complete control. He gave it up. He released his spirit. His soul was taken into hell. And now keep in mind, the Bible says he was there for three days. For three days he's being tormented. I can't begin to imagine what that was like. For three days, because Satan has him. He has him. Right where he wanted him. And he has him legally there because he died in sin. And all the anger, all the vitriol, all that it was that is Satan, what was jealous of the position that Jesus had as the second person of the God, he poured out on him. All his anger at God the Father, he couldn't get to him. He's got his son, and he's pouring it all out, and the demons are tormenting him. And he's just taking it. He's just taking it. Friday. Saturday. Sunday. At some point, the price was paid. Now listen carefully. At some point, the price was paid. And he began to become alive. Psalm 25, he began to become alive. He began to become alive in the place of death. He began to come alive in the place of death. And there had to slowly grow a terror over the face of these demons. As they realized, something's happening here. Wait a minute, this shouldn't happen. Something's happening here. Something's happening here that shouldn't happen. Now put verse 15 up, 2 Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed 
principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, this event did not appear in the Jerusalem Gazette on Sunday morning because the public place the spectacle was, was not in this earth, it was under this earth. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Some translations say he stripped principalities and powers. In the old days when, a soul, when, when armies were captured, they would take the commander, the lead commander, and they would put him in front of his troops and they would strip him of his emblems. They would rip the, whatever his garments off were. They would take his weapon, a sword, they would break it to symbol publicly in front of all of his troops his humiliation because he was their head. That's what that's talking about. All happening down there. Made a public show of them triumphing over them. And he becomes alive. And he begins to, the Bible says, God began to raise him from the dead. He began to come out of there. And I can imagine Satan screaming and yelling at him, No, you can't do this. I legally brought you here. But you see, the one thing Satan overlooked is the sin that brought, gave him a right to bring Jesus into hell. None of it did he commit. None of it did he commit. And as he's being brought up out of the grave... Guess what he left there? Your sin. Not only that, but remember what this sin means. This sin is Satan's doorway into your life. This sin is Satan's avenue to bring in sickness Worry, fear, guilt, depression, all those things that oppress us, all those things that, that, that work on the soul, all those things that anything that steals, kills, and destroys. Because the rest of that verse in John chapter 10 says, but I have come, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And that word life in the Greek means life at the level God lives it. Is God sick? Then that's not that kind of life. Is God depressed? That's not the kind of life he's talking about. Does God have no hope in the future? No. That's not the kind of... God's, it's the life that God... The level God lives. Jesus said, I came to give it to you. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. And I came that I might destroy the works of the evil one. The way he destroyed it was to take his authority away from him because in Revelation, Jesus appears and he said, I am he that was dead and I'm now alive and I have in my hands the keys of death and of hell. So when he left that place, he reached over and he took the keys to hell away from him. You know what the keys represent? Authority. If you say, Pastor John, I'd like to borrow your car. The way I give you authority to have my car is I give you the keys. That's the way you have authority to operate it. He took the keys away from him. I, this is what I saw. This has all been building up to this. 
I was praying this through about a month ago. And all of a sudden, I saw it. I was just, I was just praying about some issues, and I was I need victory in these issues. And all of a sudden, I saw it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If Jesus went there, if Satan brought him legal into hell on my behalf, and he held him there until the price was paid, and when the price was paid and Jesus came out, that means, think about this, Satan could not hold him. Satan could not hold him. Satan could not hold him. He couldn't hold him even in the place where he has the greatest power and authority. In fact, I started talking to him because you couldn't even hold him in your own office. You couldn't hold him. Listen carefully. Satan, in the place where he has all the influence, the most influence he's ever going to have, he couldn't hold Jesus there. Why? Listen carefully. Because the guilt was gone because the price was paid. And this is what I saw. If he couldn't hold Jesus because the price had been paid, then he can't hold you because the price has been paid. Woo! Whoa! Whoa! It is finished! His dominion is finished. Well, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 Pastor. If that's true, how come I'm struggling with all this stuff? There's two reasons, possible reasons. If you're not yet in Christ, for you, the price hasn't been paid yet. But if you're in Christ, it's because you're ignorant, your mind has not been renewed to what He's done for you. So He comes and threatens us and tells us what He's going to do. Reminds us, you'll never be free of this. You're always going to deal with this. And we listen to it and we never answer it. Just like the children of Israel under Saul when Goliath came out, 40 days in a row, twice a day, 80 times, and told them who he was, told them who they were, and told him what they were going to do to him, and the professional soldiers went back in fear. But a little boy who'd renewed his mind to what the Word of God says he was, that he had a covenant with God, looked at the situation in totally different eyes and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the army that belongs to the living God? We need to have an attitude. We don't go around talking to the devil. We don't go around. I did that morning. I reminded him I've read the end of the book. I know what happens to him. I just said, you couldn't hold him. You couldn't hold him. You couldn't hold him in your own kingdom. You couldn't hold him. Why couldn't you hold him? Because the price for sin was paid. Your authority was broken because the penalty had been paid. And it was paid for me. It was paid for me. It was paid for me. And if you can't hold him, you can't hold me. It's finished. It's finished. It's finished. It's finished. It's finished. Now, it takes renewing your mind to this, because I'm going to say some bold things here. 
That means if Satan couldn't hold Jesus because it was paid, he can't hold us. That means all of his powers, his works, can't hold us. In fact, Colossians 1.13, put that up there. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us. He has delivered us. What tense is that? That's past. That's, a, that's done. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. That's Satan's kingdom. And he's conveyed us or transferred us into the kingdom. Kingdom, the word, the word kingdom means area of influence, authority, and power. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children are partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That's why Paul writes, death, where is your sting? Peter wrote, we, we, we read Peter in the very beginning. He said that, that, that God might defeat the power of death, the authority of death. Does that mean my body's going to live forever? No, you are. You are. You're going to get a new body. But I said there are two reasons. The first reason is, if you're in Christ, you have the benefit of all of that, but our mind is not renewed. We still think in the world's terms. Well, certain things have to happen. You just, sicknesses in the world, we just have to be sick. That's not what the Bible teaches well, you know, it's just normal to be depressed. It's a hard world. You know, things are hard, tough, pastor. But that means your mind is not renewed to what Jesus has done for you. You're still on the leash. And we all are to some degree. But unless we know we can be free, unless we know we can be free, we won't, we won't strive for it. We won't aim for it. Paul writes in, in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So there's a battle going on. You're in a war. The war, the real war is not what's going on in the world. There's a spiritual war that's going on, and that's part of it, but there's a real war going on for you, for your soul, but, but not even that, for your destiny, for the purpose that God has for your life. We've been learning here. We have a purpose. God has a purpose for your life, every one of us. Before the foundation of the world, your life was called and ordained by God for a purpose, for a purpose. Satan understands that. He's trying to keep you so busy trying to survive that you never find out what that purpose is. And yet we're already, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, for we are more than conquerors, more than conquerors through Christ. You know what a, you know what a, a conqueror is? I've heard this story this way. We'll have to close in a minute. It's, it's the, this guy trains for months and months and months and goes into the boxing ring. And this is the, the heavyweight championship. And he knocks the champ out in 10 rounds. And he gets all cleaned up and, you know, and he comes home to his wife and they've given him the check for the, pro, for the purse. He walks in the door, bruises on his face, tape over here, hurting. Walks in the door with the check, say, dear, I won. And she reaches over and says, thank you, dear. He's the conqueror. She's more than a conqueror. 
I suggest to you, Jesus went into the ring for you. He's your champion. He went into the ring for you, and he won the battle. And when he came out, he took the proceeds of that battle, and he gave them, offered them to you. All that he won. But I said there's two reasons why we don't walk in that. The first is because we're in Christ and we just don't know that that's what he's done for us. The second is what Paul Peter goes on to read. I didn't read the rest of, that, of his message. But he goes on to say, and you are the ones that crucified him. And their response is, it says they were cut to the quick. That means their heart was touched. And they, they cried out, what must we do? It impacted them. The story of what Christ did for them impacted them to the point where they recognized, what must I do? In that little story, the wife had to reach over. She had to take the check. She had to receive the check. John chapter 3, 16, I quoted it earlier. For God so loved the world, not the church, the world. That includes all of us, everyone here today. For God so loved the world that He gave before anybody responded, he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe on him would not perish or die, but would have everlasting life. That's eternal life with God. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. My question to you this morning is where are you? Where are you in this story we've talked about? Can you sit there confidently this morning and say, I know I'm in Christ. I know I've received Him. See, here's what it is. Jesus says earlier in John chapter 3 that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, in order to receive the benefit of this, you must be born again. You must be born again. Jesus has paid the price for everybody. But you have to receive that personally into your life. Jesus said you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be. There's no other way. He also said later on, I am the way about himself. Not a way, the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one can come to the Father, heaven, unless they come through me. I was raised in church. From a little boy, I believed that Jesus was the Son of God. From a little boy, I believed that Jesus died. John 3, 16, He died to pay for the sins of the world. I believed all those things. I grew up. I went to church. Kind of went away for a little while, but then we got married and we felt we ought to get, start going to church. So we started going to a church and I became a deacon in the church and served in the church and uh, uh, actually preached a sermon once in the church. It was pretty dead, but I preached it. And one day... I began to realize, it's a long story how I got there, I began to realize, wait a minute, I know all that here, but I've never acted on that. I know it's true, but there's something else I've got to do, because my life was falling apart. I was a successful lawyer, I had a beautiful house, beautiful family, beautiful offices, more money than I could spend, everything was going great for me, but inside I was empty. And it gets a long story, but I just very 
highlight it this way. Something was missing. And there was one night when my wife and I had, well, I had a disagreement with her, let's put it that way. And I got very heated with it. It takes a lot to get me there, but I was. And I stormed out of the house. And it just finished snowing. It was very cold and very still. One of those snows late at night where nobody's driving. And I start walking, and of course, I'm steamed up. So I go, I don't remember how long, maybe a couple of blocks, until the cold begins to get through to me, and I start calming down and cooling down. And now I'm out in this darkness, in this still, in this cold. And suddenly I realized I was colder on the inside than it was on the outside. At that moment, I realized something was missing. And I began to cry out to God. I didn't know what it was. It's a long story how I got there. But I finally came to the realization that although I knew Jesus was the Son of God, although I knew He died for the sins of the world, I had never asked Him into my life to be my Savior. I had never received Him personally into my life. And that's what it means to be born again. We have four children. Four naturally born children. Two of them are twins. But each one of them was born into this world separately and personally. Even though they were twins, they still had separate births, one after the other. Your birth into the kingdom of God is a personal thing. It's something you do between you and Christ, and it's you receiving what He's done for you personally. You must be born again. You must ask Him into your life to receive the benefit of what we just talked about and eternal life that goes with it. I'm going to ask everybody to bow their head right now. And I want to pray. Father, we just ask you to take what we've heard this morning. For every person in here right now, we're all in somewhat of a different place. And I pray, Father, that your spirit would speak to each one of us what we need to hear. But there may be some here this morning, Father, that, that cannot say with certainty that they stand in good stead with you this morning. Cannot say with certainty that their life, that they've received your son into their life as the payment for our sins. I pray, Father, that you would help them. There may be some here this morning, Lord, they've done it before, but they've slidden away from you. They're wandered off on their own like the prodigal, and they realize that they need to come back. They just don't know how or whether they can. Give them that assurance this morning. In Jesus' name.